0: I'm Chaitan Bhatt, Director of the Center for the Study of Human Rights at the LSE, and I'd like to warmly welcome you to this special event hosted by the Center to mark United Nations International Human Rights Day, and I'm delighted that you could join us on this uh, cold, cold evening. UN International Human Rights Day, which is on 10th of December, so a few days away, marks the day in which the UN General Assembly adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. And the theme for tonight's event is putting rights back together again, which sort of reminded me a little bit of Humpty Dumpty, maybe. And I'm very honoured, indeed, to welcome and introduce our speaker, Salil Shetty. Salil Shetty joined Amnesty International as the organisation's eighth secretary-general in July 2010. And Amnesty International, of course, needs no introduction, but it's often forgotten that it's a global movement of its members as well as an international organisation. So Salil Shetty leads the movement's worldwide work to end the abuse of human rights. He's the organisation's chief political advisor, strategist and spokesperson and he takes Amnesty International's campaigns to the highest levels of government, the UN and, of course, business. Salil Shetty is a long-term activist on poverty and justice. He's been involved in campaigning for human rights from his student days in India And he was also involved in citizens' action for human rights in East Africa. And earlier, um, uh, he also tells me he was a student of the LSE, and I asked him earlier what he studied at the LSE, and he replied, good question.
1: (laughs) Uh,
0: I think it was social policy and planning, is that right? Prior to joining Amnesty International, he was director of the United Nations Millennium Campaign, and as chief executive of ActionAid, he's credited with transforming ActionAid into one of the world's Foremost international development NGOs. Now, it's a truism that the main focus of human rights work tends to be on political and civil rights. And in this context, Mr. Shetty's talk will focus on how the separating of civil and political rights from economic, social, and cultural rights could result in detriment to both. And he clearly comes to Amnesty with a strong background in economic and social rights. Mr. Shetty will speak for about half an hour, and there'll be plenty of time afterwards for your questions, and we'll aim to finish by or just before 8 o'clock, and there's a reception afterwards to which you're very welcome indeed. And this event and the question-and-answer session that follows is recorded, and if technology works, it'll be available on podcast online in a few days. Please can I just remind you to turn off your mobile phones, and if you want to comment on the event using Twitter, the suggested hashtag is HR Day and this is also displayed on the screen behind us. So may I ask you to extend your welcome to Salil Shetty.
2: Thank you, Chetan. I just wanted to make sure I know how this... Gadget works. Let's see. There's far too many switches here.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Do you know, Jason? are you an expert at this? How do you actually I could try be an expert? Just to move from one to the other. <laughs> Ah, I see. Okay. Thank you. That's fine. Thank you. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you, Chetan. Thanks to the Center for the Study of Human Rights for inviting me and for its important work. I'm very happy that in your introduction you didn't say anything more than just referring to my course because I see Tony Hall there, who is my professor, and guru from those days. Um, I was uh, thank you all for attending the lecture as well. I know that there are many people in this room who can speak on this topic with much greater authority than me. Um, as legal experts and academicians on this issue, I speak with great humility as a practitioner who spent a good deal of uh, my life living, in people, uh, living with people who were in poverty in Asia and Africa. So that's really my only qualification, really, to speak on this issue. Um, As uh, Chetan mentioned, the the occasion is the the Universal Declaration of Human Rights Day, and uh, the Universal Declaration, of course, clearly articulated the interdependence of civil and political rights on the one hand and economic, social, and cultural rights on the other. Um, As we celebrate the... uh, anniversary of the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights 64 years ago. Um, in some ways, it's very unfortunate that we're still debating some of its basic tenets. Yesterday, for those of you who are familiar with uh, India, yesterday I had a visitor from Ekta Parishad, which is the movement uh, which I see Frank is here as well. and There are others who are very actively involved in social movements in so many parts of the world, but Ekta Parishad is a uh, has become very uh, well-known in India for the landless struggle of landless people. And I was trying to ask him as to how does he see the distinction between uh, civil and political rights and economic, social, cultural rights. Ten minutes later, I realized that it was hopeless because he couldn't really understand what the difference was. Uh, But it's clear that we still have some difficulty in understanding how closely all rights violations are linked. So the case I'll try to make today is that our failure to grasp that interdependence is damaging not just for one, but both sets of rights. Now, sadly, from early on, human rights were held hostage to politics, and it was politics, make no mistake. The division between the two sets of rights reflected the deep divisions that ruled the world for decades. Paradoxically, neither side in the Cold War truly demonstrated its own commitment effective implementation of the rights they claim to privilege. Think McCarthyism on freedom of expression and association in the United States and state-controlled unions in the USSR. Now, in the years since the end of the Cold War, we have had the possibility of remembering, remembering the promise of human rights as universal, indivisible, and interdependent. Nonetheless, we have struggled to make this a reality. Now, this is why I brought this picture here. To be clear, Amnesty International too began in 1961 with a clear focus on civil and political rights, above all, including the forgotten prisoners of the Observer article which launched it all. The organization soon broadened from the narrowest focus on prisoners of conscience to include issues like torture and the death penalty. And it took us a full 40 years in 2001 that Amnesty voted to broaden its mandate. Specifically, this meant looking at serious violations of any rights and looking beyond the role of the state into the role of private actors. For example, with regard to corporate accountability and violence against women. This realization was based in part on the growing voice of Amnesty activists from developing countries. Now, when we talk uh, with a woman, living in a slum, for example, in Kenya, a country where I lived and worked in, we quickly learned that one of the reasons she's struggling to survive is because of discrimination against women with regard to inheritance laws. We learned that her daily life is a struggle to feed her family, ensure her kids' schooling, and avoid the violence that particularly impacts women in slums. When we talk to her more, we realize that an ever-present threat is that she would be forcibly evicted. Imagine that every time you left your home to go to school, to buy groceries, to visit a friend, you would be worrying about whether your home would be still there when you returned. Lack of security is a Democles sword hanging over the head of this woman. And then there's the issue of insecurity. Worse, we learn how she's virtually never consulted about how to analyze and fix the problems that she lives with every day. I have spent a lot of my time talking with women in Karyobangi and Kibera slums of Nairobi and I can assure you that they do not wake up and say, oh, it's Monday, so today it's about civil and political rights or oh, it's Tuesday, so today it's about economic, social and cultural rights. Each of these women wakes up every day and thinks about how to solve these problems that are in reality inextricably intertwined. But no one asks so. When the Convention of the Rights of People with Disabilities was being drafted, activists from the disability communities coined the phrase, nothing about us without us. That phrase is relevant in so many different contexts. And our work in slums typically exposes two extreme responses by governments. On the one hand, governments often abandon any pretense of policing and ensuring security in slums. If anything, they focus on making sure that violence in the slums does not spread to other neighborhoods or business districts. Other governments take the opposite tack. They declare war on crime in slums, but then choose to use military tactics. Quite apart from the obvious problem of conceptualizing the use of force differently, this sends a message that people living in poverty are the enemy of the state, or at least a threat to national security. We've seen images of this from Rio de Janeiro and Brazil on our TV screens many times in recent months. It is a common pattern around the world. I was recently in Nigeria, where a shack clearance drive in the waterfront area of Port Harcourt is justified by the governor under the pretext of cleansing the area of criminals. So let's look at some of the conventional wisdom. I think I did have a picture from Brazil as well, which, I, which is of course a picture which you will all recognize. But I wanted to now just take us through five or six of the usual sort of conventional arguments around economic, social, cultural rights versus civil, political rights. So let's look at some of this, the conventional wisdom that seeks to differentiate and privilege some rights over others. So first, we are told that economic, social, and cultural rights cannot be treated as indivisible from civil and political rights because they entail positive obligations, to provide health care or housing, unlike civil and political rights, which just involve the state refraining from certain actions, example, deciding not to torture or not to imprison somebody. But as we look into this claim, it's clear that all rights have negative and positive aspects, not least because of years of work by international human rights bodies and others. We have the clearest possible understanding that obligations in relation to human rights have three dimensions. First, to respect rights, in other words, not to interfere with those rights. Second, to protect rights, in other words, ensuring that others do not interfere. And third, to fulfill rights by facilitating access and self-help and in situations where people cannot provide for themselves to directly provide food, water, the means to seek information and so on. So that's the first argument that these are positive obligations, so we can't really mix them up with civil political rights the second argument is that we are often made to believe that economic social and cultural rights are and this is said with a disdainful sniff that they are second generation rights let's unpack this so we should focus on your right to housing or access to education or right to health only after we have secured your civil and political rights so freedom first, bread later So how do you exercise those political rights, including political participation, when you're hungry, illiterate, or homeless? Interestingly, the communist bloc held the exact opposite view, that freedom is a luxury until you have bread. But surely one should never be forced to choose between living in fear or living in want. In any case, for those suffering most harshly from human rights violations in the world today, The supposed distinction between civil and political rights on the one hand and the economic, social, and cultural rights on the other, uh, this debate is completely absurd. Events in the Middle East and North Africa in the past two years should make it difficult to see these kinds of rights as separate. For protesters in Tunisia, Egypt, and elsewhere across the region, their demand was for political participation and economic security. Abuse of power by their governments, ranging from torture and corruption, <coughs> impacted their lives on a daily basis. A popular slogan on Tahari Square and across the region was the need for karama, or dignity, a word that brings <coughs> civil, cultural, economic, political, and social rights in three simple syllables. As it happens, dignity is also the word that Amnesty International uses for our global campaign on human rights violations that drive and deepen poverty. Demand Dignity launched in 2009, Amnesty International's own voicing of the need for karama. Karama, the word karama went alongside the word Haria or freedom. So freedom from fear and freedom from want are essentially two sides of the same coin. <coughs> so that was the second so whole argument around why civil political should be different from uh, the the logic of second-generation rights. So let me take you to the third set of arguments. And this is a narrative which continues from the Cold War era, 20 years after the Cold War ended. We are told that issues regarding economic, social, and cultural rights are largely about developing countries and relate to lack of available resources. Now, this partly explains why some developing countries have been reluctant to ratify the optional protocol to the Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, They see it as another weapon with which developed countries will bash them. (coughs) And conversely, developed countries are worried that this will become the basis to demand for greater aid budgets. The reality is that the resource availability issue is only one part of the story. Groups of people who are excluded from political processes and denied equal protection of the law often suffer violations of their economic, social and cultural rights even in affluent countries. Our work with Roma communities in Europe demonstrate that the failure to realize economic, social, and cultural rights cannot be explained by a lack of resources. Of course, I'm not suggesting that resources do not have a role in the full realization of rights, but the core question is how governments allocate the resources and how willing they are to protect the rights of most marginalized groups. Take the example of Slovenia, Uh, the former Yugoslav Republic and now a member of the European Union. Slovenia is an affluent country, but the majority of the Roma in the country, which is less than 1% of the population, as the government itself has recognized, and I quote, live in settlements that are isolated from the rest of the population or on the outskirts of inhabited areas in conditions that are far below any minimum living standard. This is a direct quote from a government document. Nearly all Slovenes have access to safe drinking water, but many Romans, uh, Roma settlements still lack access to sufficient and safe water. Vanya Hocivar, this is a picture, lives with a partner and nine children in a poorly built small wooden hut in an informal Roman, Roma settlement. Uh, the place is called Dobruska Skotsian Municipality. They have no security of tenure limited access to safe water, electricity, and no sanitation. They collect water for drinking, cooking, and washing from the dirty stream near their home. They have no toilet, no bathroom. Their hut is poorly insulated and infested with vermin. They stay only because they have nowhere else to go. A few years ago, they attempted to buy a property and move outside the Roma settlement, but the owner said that he doesn't want to sell his property to Roma people. And the politicians who could make their decisions to address a situation will not do so because their political constituency does not care and may actively vilify members of the Roma community. So it's not just a matter of the state having resources. It is equally about the policy choices governments make. This is why courts have a pivotal role to play in safeguarding the rights of those who are excluded and whom politicians ignore. As Amartya Sen pointed out a long while ago, Black males in the U.S., the, richard, the richest country in the world, have a much lower life expectancy than men in much poorer countries, including Jamaica, Costa Rica, and even parts of India. Which brings us to the fourth myth, that it is adequate to look at these issues solely through the lens of discrimination because in that case there's a clear violator. Now, as in the case of, uh, as the case of uh, Vanya Hocheva demonstrates, Discrimination plays a significant role with regard to violations of economic, social, and cultural rights. That discrimination is evident in developed as well as developing countries. But if we only look at this through a discrimination lens, we lose the opportunity to explore the realization of these rights fully. One could produce a powerful study on how discrimination against girls in certain parts of Pakistan deprives them of the right to education. And it would be a report with lots of discrimination cases, as, of course, the death defying courage of Malala reminded us. But if we stopped there, we would only be telling half the story. In parts of Pakistan, girls may be prevented from going to school, even primary school. But in these same areas, boys may be sent to schools where the curriculum does nothing to actually fulfill their right to education. So the way to tackle the right to education is to define the minimum core content of the right to education for all children in Pakistan, as well as expose the discrimination against girls and protect the activists who expose it. Let me give you one more example going back to Nigeria. In Nigeria where there are more than 900 people on death row, including some who are under 18, and many more who were sentenced by military tribunals and without the right to appeal. Now, both of these statistics are disturbing. Amnesty International, as you may all know, is, of course, opposed to death penalty in all cases under any circumstances. But George Orwell might have written in this case, all prisoners are equal, but some are more equal than others. Questions of guilt and innocence are almost irrelevant in many parts of Nigeria. As one leading Nigerian activist pointed out, And I quote, it's all about if you can afford to pay to keep yourself out of the system. Whether that means paying the police to adequately investigate your case, paying for a lawyer to defend you, or paying to have your name put on a list of those eligible for pardon. Some prisoners told Amnesty International that they were arrested when they went to a police station to report a crime they had witnessed. Police demanded money for their release. Without money, no release. Or let me put it more crudely, Rich people who may be guilty go free, and poor people who are innocent may die. Which is why the bailout clause of progressive realization can be very useful for recalcitrant governments, but literally the death knell for the poor. So the last myth I want to tackle is the question of enforceability. Now, some argue that economic, social, cultural rights are non-justiciable. They're not legally enforceable within the courts. Now, this is wrong. (coughs) At a minimum, a court can provide redress for those whose rights are violated because of patent discrimination, but they can do more, and some courts have. They can engage in defining minimum core standards for rights. For people living in poverty, claiming their rights can be very difficult. In the case of economic, social, and cultural rights, these factors are compounded by the lack of incorporation of these rights within national laws or the view that persists that these rights are not capable of judicial enforcement. But it is really no longer feasible to keep arguing that the rights, economic, social, cultural rights, are not capable of judicial enforcement, when courts are in fact doing this in virtually all regions of the world. Others may feel that taking the government to court on these issues brings about little change in the situation. It's true that many progressive judgments across the spectrum of rights face the problem that they're not often implemented or implemented very poorly. However, as the experience of India, Colombia, and South Africa, and many other countries show, legal enforcement of economic, social, and cultural rights can lead to concrete and positive changes in the lives of people. I'll give you two examples. First, the right to food in India. In India in 2001, the Supreme Court ruled that minimum school guarantees for families' school meal guarantees for families living below the poverty line should be legally binding and implemented in full. The court ordered cooked midday meals with specified minimum content to be provided to all school children for a minimum of 200 days a year. This decision resulted in an additional 350,000 girls enrolling in school every year, due to the increased availability of school meals. In other words, real-life, real-world changes for people's lives. There's, of course, the other celebrated case of HIV-AIDS in South Africa. In South Africa, the courts made a crucial ruling when the lack of access to drugs that prevented mother-to-child transmission of HIV resulted in the infection of 70,000 infants in the year 2000 alone. (laughs) This despite the backing for the drug of the World Health Organization and the fact that the drug manufacturer agreed to supply it free for five years. In 2002, South Africa's Constitutional Court ruled that the government must permit and expedite the use of antiretroviral drugs to prevent mother-to-child HIV transmission. The decision, as we all know, has had enormous impact. It undermined the government's HIV denialist policies. In 2003, the South African Cabinet adopted an operational plan to combat AIDS that included ARVs as one of its core components. This, in turn, opened the door across sub-Saharan Africa for a real push for ARVs to be delivered by governments with spectacular results in the global fight against AIDS. For all of the reasons that I've described, Amnesty International sees the interdependence of rights as a key to creating the world in which all people are born free and equal in dignity and rights. People knowing about their rights is the first step to claiming them. In 2005, the government of India introduced the Right to Information Act after a public campaign highlighted how people living in poverty in rural areas were disadvantaged by lack of information and how this also disadvantaged them and contributed to rampant corruption and famine relief. The act is a significant step towards greater transparency and accountability. And that right to information contributed towards a court decision denying the mining giant Vedanta permission to extract bauxite in the Nyamgiri Hills, the traditional uh, (coughs) living area, traditional lands of Dongriya Kond, indigenous group. The company has challenged these decisions before the courts in India and final decisions are pending. But the fact that things have got so far and Amnesty International is very actively involved in this is a very significant development. So over the past 20 years, We have seen the expansion of national and international law to protect global economic interests through a range of international agreements on investment, trade, and intellectual property rights, backed by robust enforcement mechanisms. However, while economic interests have been able to make the law work for them, those harmed by their operations have often seen law and protection of the law recede in the face of corporate power. Deregulation, the need to attract foreign investment, and Provisions and trade and investment agreements have all squeezed the protection the law can provide people affected by corporate operations, particularly in poor countries. Some of you may have seen the recent report, and I'm I'm seeing uh, Chetan looking a bit worried <coughs> that I'm taking too long, no, but no, I'm no, Okay, um, but this is a recent report that uh, we released jointly with uh, with Greenpeace uh, just a few months ago, based on detailed investigation of the events before, during and after the dumping of toxic waste in Abidjan Côte d'Ivoire, in 2006. Now, numerous governments could have stopped this from happening, but did nothing. As a result, the people of Abidjan suffered. Tens of thousands of people experienced health problems, including nausea, headaches, vomiting, uh, etc. Uh, medical personnel recorded that over 100,000 people received medical treatment linked to exposure to the waste. Now, there are laws and international standards that can prevent the transboundary movement of hazardous waste. Waste. But this case highlights how a multinational company was able to exploit loopholes in enforcement of these laws, corporate entities involved in the dumping of the toxic waste in Kodawa and the impacts this has had on the people and the environment. The victims in Abidjan are still waiting for justice. So unless adequate regulation and enforcement Mechanisms to hold corporate entities as well as other international ac- actors to account for their actions, they and their victims will continue to be denied their right to an effective remedy uh, and failed by all states. <clears throat> uh, universal jurisdiction is a principle whose essential validity is now widely acknowledged. I should mention here that uh, George W. Bush was so worried about the possibilities of universal jurisdiction that he canceled a trip to Switzerland last year after Amnesty International sent documents to Swiss prosecutors concluding that there was enough information to open a criminal investigation against the former president. I was looking for a picture of that, but I couldn't find one. (laughs) Uh, So in closing... uh, uh, Chaitan and and uh, o- and the audience here. In closing, I suppose one of the questions that we keep getting asked is, how can a grassroots human rights movement take on the entrenched power of corporate actors, corrupt governments, and challenge abuses of power all over the world? And our answer is, we do it the same way that we challenge dictatorships, military hunters, and hypocritical democracies, which is by speaking truth to power and by appealing to ordinary people's sense of justice. When Peter Benenson, founder of Amnesty International, described his vision of the organization half a century ago, it was dismissed as one of the larger lunacies of our time. Today we have over 3 million members across the world, and it is a heritage worth emulating, tilting at windmills because we all deserve a better world. So in conclusion, looking forward, I believe we can and we should be more ambitious in our goals. If we are merely paying lip service to the importance of economic and social cultural rights, then those rights might as well not exist. So what are the specific points I'd like to make? One, we need to break down the barriers faced by groups living in poverty or those who face discrimination in accessing remedies and holding states and companies to account. Second, we must balance equation by not just focusing on reform of institutional laws, but also ask what is concretely needed to empower people to claim their rights. And third, we need to increase the understanding of (coughs) extraterritorial obligations, including the responsibilities of companies, donor governments, and international financial institutions in an increasingly globalized world. So the indivisibility of rights, in our view, is no longer an inchoate idea. It is a reality, a reality lived by virtually every person living in poverty. And it must be a reality for all of us, committed to building rights-respecting societies. And we need you, your interest, your intellectual curiosity, your commitment, and your willingness to dream of a better world. So join us in this struggle. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much indeed for a very rich and enlightening lecture and we have time for questions and I know many people will have questions for Mr. Shetty and I'd like to take questions in groups of three and uh, you'll see our wonderful magnificent LSE stewards in their red hot t-shirts with their microphones so uh, if you have questions if you could raise your hands and they will come to you Uh, please wait until they come to you with the microphones before asking your questions so that everybody can hear you Clearly. And when you ask your question, could you please say your name and your organization, if any? And can we also, I know some people may want to make statements, um, brief statements that help the discussion move forward, help it flow, are very welcome, but please refrain from long speeches. Thank you. Who would like to go first? Question at the back.
4: Uh, Hi, this is Grace from Anthropology and uh, uh, Development uh, course. Uh, I have a question. Uh, Let's face the reality that a lot of governments, they have no good intention and no motivation to make good policies. What do you think is uh, ANST's biggest bargaining power and resources? Can you give more details on that? when you do these advocacy and um, champion activities. Okay,
0: can I take a couple more questions? Anybody else?
4: Hi, my name is Emily. I'm a social policy and planning student here as well. Um, My question is somewhat related. I was curious about uh, how amnesty is addressing issues of climate change and environmental rights uh, in the context of all the other um, types of rights that you talked about obviously they're interconnected and in particular there's some uh, activity going on right now at least in the US around pushing um, universities to divest in, uh, climate, in fossil fuels and just curious what Amnesty thinks about those kind of divestment strategies
0: Okay the questions are sort of coming from there are there any from the upper gallery One more question anyone Okay do you want to take this
2: Thank you I should say that the deal I have with my colleague Meghna who's sitting there is that if the questions get really difficult, she answers them because she's our in-house guru on economic, social, cultural rights. So, But um, I can certainly, you know, um, I mean, if it's more legalistic, she's a legal expert as well on this. But um, in terms of, uh, you know, governments and their behaviors, I think it would be quite hard to disagree with you. I don't think governments... Uh, generally, you know, do things, uh, do the right things of their own. They do need some help uh, to remind them of their responsibilities to do the right thing. Now, <clears throat> what does Amnesty do? I think we have sort of uh, the most powerful thing we have sort of in our uh, repertoire, so to speak, would be our ability to make sure we have the truth. So, you know, getting the evidence and getting the Research and the analysis right is at the heart of everything we do. So, because if you're not very sure of your facts, then you're you're not in, you're not on safe ground. So, that's at the heart of everything we do. Um, and I think wh- what I've noticed in my last two and a half years with Amnesty is even the governments who um, really don't like us, they still can't ignore us because of that the the fact that we we get our evidence right. So, I think that's the fir- the starting point. But I think the unique thing about Amnesty is that. We combine this with uh, the grassroots mobilization. We have over 3 million members across the world. And I think that combination of uh, speaking truth to power and mobilizing people at the grassroots level uh, is is a sort of winning combination. That's what's helped Amnesty do what it has. Of course, the fact that we've been at it for 50 years um, gives us a fair bit of credibility and access to media. You know, one of the problems we have with our leaders these days is the they sometimes listen more to things coming from the media than their voters as well. So I think that combination of uh, the facts, the media pressure, the lobbying power we have, and the grassroots mobilisation. So it's not there's no secret recipe. It's a kind of obvious set of things, but we've done it I think reasonably well. It doesn't always work, of course. Uh, we've, even if you have everything, they could still ignore you. So the other very crucial thing in these things is if you take the campaign against death penalty, for example. Uh, when we started the campaign, uh, there was the hardly a handful of countries who were uh, actually not practicing execution 's death penalty, but today it 's up to one hundred and thirty countries or so uh, and so the, the point I was making is that you need to have the staying power it 's not something you can do and, you know, uh, for in a short while. The, the arms trade treaty work we 've done is a good example. Um, some of you may be familiar that we are actually on the verge of finally having a treaty to regulate the flow of arms and to make sure that it doesn't reach the hands of those who use it for human rights violations. The world today has treaties including for things like bananas and all sorts of things, but we don't have a a decent regulatory mechanism for the flow of arms. But we're pretty close to that, a campaign which we, along with many, many other actors, have been involved for more than 15 years. So I think staying power is very important. Uh, on climate change, uh, this is a, a perpetual debate inside Amnesty, as to, you know, and this is not just for climate change, but climate change has become obviously a very crucial issue in the recent past. So I would say that we, we approach it uh, from different angles. The work we do on extractive industries, um, that's very close. And the traffic guru example is a good one where we worked with Greenpeace. So what we try and make sure is that we build on the strengths of other organizations where they have particular expertise, but we bring in a kind of human rights uh, angle and perspective into that. So that, I would say, is the an extractive industry is the place where we do a lot of that. But, you know, it's, as you said yourself, these issues are so interlinked, it's quite difficult. If we do work on water or sanitation, it gets connected up. So whatever, it's quite difficult to separate. I mean, and that's why classic sort of UN charter language, you know, the link between the environment, peace, development, and human rights, they're really all the pillars Of uh, of a sort of a a society which is uh, respectful of its own future.
0: There's a question just from there.
2: Um, Evening, I'm a.
5: Excuse me. I'm. I did the masters in human rights here a couple of years ago, and I was interested in your views on the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, um, in particular, because there was the forum just last few days ago. So, um, are you optimistic about the applicability of the of of that guideline and you know will it have any tangible impact on corporations and their general conduct and outlook as it were on human rights
0: yes sir you had a question
6: uh, my question is quite simple but first of all i am dr Yunus rice I've, uh, i'm practically lost in the cosmopolitan society of london I'm very cosmopolitan in my outlook. I love Malaysia as much as I love England. But very often when anything international organization with regard to human rights presents something in Malaysia, it's always negative. Although I've been out of that country for many, many years, the amount of progress that has made, they are buying your power stations here. The educational standards are very high. I think any presentation of human rights is always biased and it's against The third world, nothing with regard or with respect to what happens in the advanced countries like England. There are 2 million, 3 million people who can hardly read. And I was looking forward to your talk, the title. Your title stimulated my brain when you said, ah, human rights have had a fall, free falls since 1948. They got reduced to 30. And finally they got reduced to something like 29. 29. And in 1998, Britain reduced to 18. And here was restoration of human rights. But there was nothing of the sort. It's the usual story. Denigration of the weak and the poor and the third world. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Sam. And we have a question from the
6: upper gallery.
7: Hi, I'm Hannah, and I'm studying gender policy and inequality at LSE. And I'm just curious about, like, in some countries... It's a little hard to work with the other, like, government in, like, gender issues because they are not, like, so used to, like, know, of, like, know about these concepts of human rights. And the government itself is not so corporate because of, like, religions or other cultural issues. So how... Does amnesty international could really affect on this and then really cooperate with those governments as well as those people?
0: Thank you very much. Salim.
2: I, I found it difficult to locate the speaker and consequently I found it difficult to understand the question. So Chetan, you might want to just recap the last question. I understood the first two, particularly no, the second. I
8: have a suggestion on that point. But when we, when we ask the question why
2: don't we stand
0: yeah, up? might be good. Yes, that would be helpful. Yeah. thank you very much. I will bear that in mind for future reference. And
6: keep standing till the question okay. is
0: answered. <laughs> you might have to wait a long time. Might get very tired. Okay. Um, the last question was about gender. Uh, and the question before that was around the diminishing of the number of uh, no, that I got issues you. around human rights.
2: So, What is the question yeah. on gender? Sorry, what is the specific question? Yeah. Could you just please repeat that? I didn't really...
0: It's about the relationship of, uh, oh, it's of up women with okay, yeah.
2: women. Sorry, good. I'm here. Okay. Um,
7: so so I'm just curious about, like, because I'm studying gender policy and inequality at LIC, and in some country it's hard to, like adopt like work with like some government in in certain countries, it says like RB country because they are not like I mean the the, hum, the the approach that Amnesty International are trying to do through human rights may not acceptable in certain countries government and they are probably not so cooperate with work like cooperate um, with Amnesty International, as well as people as well, they are not so ready to accept this concept. So I just wanted to okay. know what, the, yeah.
2: Thank you. Much easier now that I can see you there. So. Okay, can I, do you want me to answer? Please, yeah, okay. Please. So on the uh, business and human rights, I mean, I think you're asking more specifically about the sort of ragi principles and the... Uh, That was the most specific point because there's a whole discussion we could have on business and human rights. So our, you know, we've been, uh, John Ruggie and us, we've worked quite closely on this. We've been having a sort of ongoing debate on this question. And our view generally is that uh, the, the proposition that they're making that we should have a voluntary sort of approach, a voluntary sort of code of conduct is good, but it's not good enough. And uh, Because w- what we are having now is a whole plethora of standards and codes of conduct which are voluntary. Uh, our view is that we've reached a point where we actually need some mandatory, um, you know, mandatory rules on how corporate should behave. Um, the problem we have with the voluntary uh, approach is that the, the, the companies who would like to do the, the right thing, they're going to do it anyway. The problem we have is the ones who don't want to do the right thing. And with them, the voluntary approach doesn't work. And we, we believe that actually we've reached a point in our evolution and thinking, even on the legal aspects, that you know we don't need to any, anymore rely on a voluntary approach. And I, I was having this conversation with uh, Sir Vernon Ellis, who some of you might know, who was the chair of Accenture, who comes from a corporate background. And one of the really interesting examples he gave was uh, in the UK context where you have, say, uh, you know all these opera houses, and he was, I think, the chair of one of these English national opera houses, etc., whatever one of the f- sort of hallowed establishments of English culture. Um, and he was saying that initially there was a big argument there about uh, whether safety guidelines for dancers on these wooden floors should be voluntary or mandatory. This was a big debate when it first started. But now you take that as a given because you you know you, you the discussion has evolved to a point where this becomes it's there's no question that this is mandatory. So the whole issue of corporate behaviour we feel has now reached a point where, given the sort of egregious misbehaviour of corporations in so many parts of the world, we are no more in a you know position where we can accept voluntary codes of conduct. This should be enforceable. So that's our position on the Ragi principles, and of course. It's easier said than done, but there are many corporations who themselves are interested in moving in this direction. Interestingly, and this kind of t- takes us on the second point, the Malaysian uh, gentleman's question, the sudden interest in Western companies to make human rights enforceable is linked to the growth of companies in China, India, and Brazil. So suddenly Western companies are starting to say, no, 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 actually it's a good idea, we should make this all mandatory. The ones who are, you know, very systematically avoiding and perpetrating human rights violations themselves have suddenly started feeling the value of having mandatory uh, codes of conduct for companies. Uh, uh, to a friend from Malaysia, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry that you need give you need to be telling me this. This is kind of exactly what I say normally <laughs> on these issues. Because, I mean, today's talk was not focused on those questions. As far as Amnesty is concerned, our work on uh, you know, on the question of making uh, being consistent in in the way in which we look at human rights is something we are deeply conscious of, and I, obviously, coming from India, are even more conscious of that question. Um, in the European context, you you looked at briefly of our work on forced evictions. We've done a huge amount of work on migration and how there is massive discrimination in the way migrants are treated. Uh, our whole work on counter terror, which is I briefly mentioned, uh, George Bush's you know, self-confession in his memoirs uh, saying that waterboarding is not torture. I mean, he actually confessed that he had authorized waterboarding and we took that on. I mean, unfortunately, the U.S. government is not taking it on, but I don't think you need to worry about Amnesty International using the same standards, whether it's uh, the West or whether it's – we have the same standards. Now, having said that, we don't need to pretend about what the reality is. I'm I'm not talking about Malaysia. I mean, I I don't know enough about Malaysia to comment on it. But the fact is that, you know, we have many, many challenges in Asia, Africa. uh, Developing countries have bigger challenges on human rights than Western countries. But by no means can we say... That the West doesn't have its own uh, human rights challenges, the richer countries don't. And it's not even an economic issue, because, and that takes me to the third point. You know, I've just come back recently from Kuwait and Gulf states, where it's not a resource issue. Human rights abuses, you can't relate only to resources, and that's what I said in my presentation as well. On the gender question and the sort of culture issue, just reminded me of one example. Uh, last year, after the revolution, I was in Egypt. Uh, to talk to the Supreme Council of Armed Forces about the the new Egypt and what the agenda for change should be. It's interesting given where we are today and this week in the Egyptian political reality. But uh, one of the things that – one of the groups we met were uh, women – 20 or so women who were in Tahrir Square. And when they were – and then they were picked up and taken to uh, one of the military uh, detention centers – and before being released from the military detention centers, the Supreme Council of Armed Forces and the military forces insisted that they give them uh, virginity tests. They had, to, they had to undergo virginity testing. Um, and this was a conversation that we had with uh, Assisi, who is now the head of defense in the Morsi government. And he was the head of military intelligence under SCAF. And uh, Assisi was trying to persuade uh, the amnesty delegation that when we questioned him, saying, why is it that you're doing this virginity testing, their argument was that you don't understand Egyptian culture. That if we are in a situation where these women go out and if they were proved to have uh, been raped, by, by, uh, then the allegation would be that the rape had been caused by the soldiers. Now, it's a very complicated it's a justification Uh, and he seemed to be very comfortable making the justification but his whole argument was that you know this is culturally appropriate Uh, you may think that this is not right but the Egyptian people will not forgive us if we don't do this now as it happened we had spoken to the women who had been through this virginity testing and so I had to ask him so whose views are you representing When you say, this is your culture, the women we talked to didn't think so, that they had to go through this virginity testing. So, you know, this relativity thing, of course, we have to be mindful that we don't have the same situation everywhere. But whose voice, By who's making these judgments and what is culturally relative, what's appropriate or not? Because it's a slippery slope if you go down the relativist argument.
0: Thank you. There's a question in a third row.
2: Um, I'm not going to stand up. You can, you're
0: very welcome to stand up if you wish, but you don't have to.
1: Um, my name's Margot Picken. Sorry, my name's Margot Picken, And um, I'm a visiting fellow at the uh, Human Rights Centre. Sorry. It oh, yeah, okay. Um, so, Leah, your, your, your talk has raised lots and lots of questions. Um, and, uh, and I suppose I feel that there are many problems in our world. There are many forces um, that are working to correct them, to deal with them. And the question for me is, um, what is the role of Amnesty International um, as an organization which um, has developed, uh, and I should say that I worked for Amnesty International for some 11, 12 years um, in the 70s and 80s, and then went on to, to work in other human rights um, uh, efforts. Um, so, for, for 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 me, the big question and is is what what should Amnesty be doing? And um, and the way you spoke suggested that you thought that Amnesty itself should be doing engaging in in all of these problems. And I don't see how it can um, do that if it wants to maintain consistency. Um, it's uh, a membership it's global membership that works together um, it's high quality of research um, which it has developed over, over many years um, how is it going to work also with local and national groups uh, on the ground because one of the success stories I think for human rights over the last decades has been the development of local and national groups um, how is Amnesty going to relate to those groups and, and how can it best support them and, and I ask that because I think that's always been a question in our minds um, if you read the Nobel speech uh, that Amnesty made in 1977 I think it becomes clear that Amnesty was very conscious of economic and social and cultural rights in fact it was that year when the General Assembly of the UN declared the indivisibility of human rights so,
4: anyway, thank okay, you. Okay,
0: and if you could pass the microphone along. Thank you.
4: Sorry, uh, Maggie Byrne. Since I was also working at Amnesty in the past, Margaret's asked one of my questions. So, um, Also, because we happen to be in London, and the International
2: Secretariat's here in London, and I've read about two strikes of staff, um, and which has worried me considerably. I just wondered if you wanted to take this opportunity to say something about that. That would be helpful. Thank you.
0: Okay, and if you could pass the microphone... One row forward.
4: Hi, my name is Nina. I'm a gender analyst for USAID. Um, I was wondering what you thought was the future for the human rights framework. If you look at Afghanistan, for example, which is what I've been focusing my work on, um, they've ratified a number of treaties and conventions. They've ratified CEDAW, for example. And as most people will know, the situation there for women's rights and women generally is just abhorrent. Um, and the international community is engaging in a plethora of human rights training i've delivered a number myself and there's no shortage of people knowing about their rights i mean specifically in kabul is different in other areas um, and there's also obviously those ratified treaties and yet things aren't progressing i wonder if Having had all these conventions, having done all the work in 1948, subsequently, whether we've become a little complacent, and what you think should be the direction the human rights framework goes in. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you very much for those three very dense and interesting questions. Salo.
2: Thank you. Uh, just on the on the sort of the internal, uh, you know, how, this is something as I think those of you who've been with Amnesty for much longer, you can you can answer the question better than me. It's a, uh, it's a it's a constant set of questions as to what should be our role in the changing world. You know, there's no sort of one answer to that question. But certainly I think uh, we've become more and more aware of the, the fact that if, I mean, we, the Amnesty celebrated its 50th anniversary last year, which kind of led to a whole bunch of self-reflection and thinking on this question. And certainly the question right now we're facing is how do we adapt ourselves and make us fit for purpose for the next 50 years. So, you know, that's the sort of time horizon you should look at. Of course, you can't plan for 50 years, but how do you think of yourself for the next 50 years? And one of the most dramatic changes is exactly what I think you were saying, that there's so many actors now in terms of local actors, uh, grassroots movements, and I gave you the example of uh, work on Vedanta, for example, (coughs) um, the bauxite mining issue. Uh, And in, in that case, as a concrete example, we work very closely with... Uh, national civil society organizations, uh, with the Dongria Dongriakon leaders themselves, um, and with national media. But at this end, at the UK end, we've been able to put a lot of pressure uh, through the shareholders. The fact that Vedanta is a registered company in the UK, we've been able to bring that leverage to bear as well, to make sure that they feel the pressure at this end, that there are people watching them at this end as well. So you asked as to what is Amnesty's sort of comparative advantage, I would say the single biggest comparative advantage of Amnesty is the fact that we're global. So it's a very, very essential element of Amnesty is the global nature of the organization. Uh, I believe that uh, the membership of Amnesty, which is, of course, heavily concentrated uh, for historical reasons in North America and Europe, uh, is something which can absolutely uh, spread uh, very uh, effectively to Africa, to Asia, to Latin America, because there's now a growing population in all of these countries which feel like they're part of an international community. We didn't have that possibility even 20 years ago, but today we know that there are enough Brazilians, Africans, Indians, people in the Middle East and North Africa who would like to be part of a global movement. And I think it's very important that we uh, afford that possibility for those uh, people in all of these countries to really contribute to this global movement. There are lots of practical issues and managerial challenges, which uh, I think you saw some of the flashes of that which you were referring to earlier, which internally we have to sort out, but uh, as long as I think we don't compromise the quality of our research, the global coherence and, and consistency with which we work, I think uh, you know, the, the need for amnesty for the next 50 years is only greater, which kind of takes me into the, the point that you were making, which is what is the future of human rights? Uh, I, I would say, that, I mean, you're right to say that, you know, we're at a, in a phase where a lot of the normative work has happened. we still there's some new areas. We talked about climate change, business and human rights. We're still uh, at an early stage in some of those areas. But there are other areas where we have strong uh, frameworks, treaties, conventions, all of that. So the challenge very much is on the implementation and the delivery. And for that, we absolutely need to have the ground. Presence and the grassroots activism and that 's why I was saying earlier that amnesty 's benefit has been that we could do both. We had the normative sense, but also the grassroots pressure uh, and that takes us back to that question that you know we need to have that grassroots pressure more and more in the places where the violations are happening we can 't only have it historically you know we could do it by putting pressure from the developed countries onto developing countries that 's I think going to become more and more challenging in the future because as you can imagine, if you go to the Brazilian government and say that uh, we have members uh, in France who, who don't like what you're doing, I mean, they'll be respectful, but that's not going to move the lever. You know, We need to have the Brazilians to say to the Brazilian government, sorry, you know, you can't butcher your people in Sao Paulo anymore. You know? yeah. We have Brazilian uh, people who are going to challenge that. And we will work respectfully with local organizations in doing that. I think... We need to make sure that we, we don't uh, take the space of local organizations. But, I mean, everybody I've spoken to has generally welcomed the need for I'm, I've just come back from Nigeria. I was saying to you just a short while ago. Um, and as you know, Nigeria has got a whole raft of uh, national NGOs and local organizations. But what amnesty brings to the table, I think, is quite unique and very welcomed by a cross-section of people.
0: Okay, thank you very much. There's a question from the third row in the middle. Frank? It's up to you, Frank. I think we can hear you sitting down before standing up.
5: That's my right. Um, (laughs) Frank Judd, member of House of Lords, former director of Oxfam, and an uh, 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 emeritus governor of the school, of which I'm very proud. I want to thank you most warmly for your address. You spoke to me in the language of the real world and the harsh and brutal realities of life for people in the world. I'm a passionate believer in the work that's done on individual abuses of human rights. They're crucial, but there's a fat lot of good just settling for that unless we're taking fully into the battle the cause of the context in which those abuses happen. And of course, there is an interrelationship between economic and social rights and um, legal rights as understood. In my work at Oxfam, which was an immense learning experience for me, I became totally convinced that one of the most important features in the struggle of ordinary people What's justice? And then, of course, you move on to talk of the rule of law. And the, the term the rule of law is loosely used sometimes as somehow the solution to everything. Of course, it matters what's in that law. And human rights have to be central to it. Now, in this context, I want to ask you a very specific question, if I may, about how you, as an internationalist, working in an international organisation, see a trend in my own country here the United Kingdom. There is an immensely important debate developing on a Bill of Rights versus the integration of human rights into our own law and the importance of the European Court of Human Rights and the rest. Is there not a profound danger that quite apart from the issue of what is the motivation for this change, is it to expand human rights or is it to more closely define in a restrictive way human rights, but quite apart from that issue, is there not a danger that if we were to do that, we would undermine the global cause of human rights because it would seem (laughs) as though it was something that's just about our own society and that these were not absolute Uh, considerations and values reflected in
4: international law, which applied everywhere.
0: Thank you very much, Frank, and there's a question from the back.
4: Um, Hello, I'm an undergraduate student in international relations at LSE, and I was just curious, um, with the Millennium Development Goals set to end in 2015, are there any sort of talks as to what's going to replace them, and um, if there are such talks, what sort of Amnesty International's role in them?
0: Thank you, and a question from the front
3: here. Um, my question is, it sort of relates to something you've already touched upon in terms of um, cultural relativism. The thing that I found most disturbing in your presentation was the part from Slovenia when you said that the local politicians were prevented from taking action because local, the feeling of local people was um, pretty much against taking action. And the example from Egypt was great as well. So in those contexts, what is the appropriate course of action for an organisation like Amnesty because you very much put yourselves forward as a grassroots organisation so you need to be driven by people on the ground and so do you need to change hearts and minds and then take the politicians with you or would you ever try and usurp that through the media and have politicians lead in that change of hearts and minds and when do you have to just throw your hands up and say sometimes on some topics people have the, the laws and the government that they deserve maybe. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. I mean, how much time do we have, Chief? We've got time. But I would like
0: to get a few more questions (laughs) in before we finish.
2: I mean, some of these uh, uh, questions which which will take time. I think uh, we, as you know, uh, Frank, you've... This is a pleasure of being Lord Frank Judd. You don't remember that we've met a few times before. But in terms of the UK Bill of Rights, uh, I'm not by any means uh, an expert on the question. But I think for our view, and I'm kind of quoting here from our uh, UK colleagues who specialize in this question, that uh, on the one hand, having a strong Bill of Rights would be welcome to the extent that it helps human rights. But our worry is that it will send a very negative signal internationally particularly given the sort of uh, very political politicized nature of the debate and certainly in, in the context of the european uh, court that that whole debate in the context of europe um, our, our view is that the if the argument is that everything is being pushed to the european court etc if you actually look at the data here that we have which is kind of contrary to public perception the cases from the uk apparently account only for 2.4% of those reviewed by the european court 25% of the cases come from russia so there's lots of you know distortion of facts in the way that this is going on and broadly speaking i think we are we are deeply worried i think we share your worry that this is a race to the bottom on that point on the on the point of uh, the Millennium Development Goals, which is what I worked on for several years before coming to Amnesty, we are, we are looking at that question ourselves as to what happens in the post 2015 framework. Now, uh, the, there's a UN process, you know, classic UN process. It's already started, so lots of national consultations. Uh, there's a coalition here, a Beyond 2015 coalition, which is working in the UK context as well. So uh, you, if you Google Beyond 2015, you'll get a lot of the information on the, on the actual UN process. September 2013, which is next uh, General Assembly, there will be the final review of the MDGs, kind of the last lap of the Millennium Development Goals. And in September 2013, the high-level panel, which has been created to look at the post-2015 process, will present its recommendations, initial recommendations. So that's on the process side. Now, on the content side, my view on this question is that the best way to decide what we want in the post-2015 framework must be by doing a careful review of what's worked and what's not worked in the first 10 years or first 12 years as we are now. And, you know, many good things have happened. There's no question about it. But at the heart of the problem, there are two problems. One is uh, the whole question, because they were aggregated, the goals were aggregated, the issue of inequality and discrimination was simply neglected. That just by the way it's structured. So, the, the goals, we have to bring in a sharp focus on the question of what happens to sort of the last mile problem because in most countries you're still having the biggest, even in countries which have done well in aggregate terms on achieving the goals, uh, you'll find that the bottom 25 to 30 percent at a minimum have been excluded. Now, it's not that the Millennium Development Goals could themselves have sorted this problem. These are deep social inequalities. But for the next phase, we need to have a sharp focus on that. And the second problem is this issue which you mentioned in the context of Afghanistan, which is that our government of India is a good example, and all our governments in the developing world, they're great at you know, announcing policies and rhetorical statements. The challenge is implementation. So the implementation question is weak, in the way the framework has been formulated in the first phase. So the next phase, the accountability of governments to deliver against the commitments they are making has to be front and center. And that effectively, the combination of the inequality issue and the accountability issue actually firmly moves the Millennium Development Goals post-2015 into a human rights framework because they are the two core issues. If you look at discrimination and inequality and accountability, they're just different words for human rights, really. And of course, content-wise, you could argue, and I'm sure there will be a strong case, to integrate the climate and environment issues much more closely, of course. That's an obvious one. Um, and as you know, with, through the Rio Sustainable Development Goals um, sort of articulation, uh, there is going to be a challenge to bring these two pieces together. I think that's where we are on that, on that question. Now, um, I think on the on the rule of law, I've kind of, uh, I mean, that's a complex, I, I'm not sure, you know, there's a clear answer to that. I can give you one example from an Amnesty International uh, sort of experience. So one of the things that we worked on is um, in the case of, you know, European, uh, in the European context in France and Belgium, et cetera, we have this whole debate about full-faced whales, as you know, in France. Now, as you know, historically, Amnesty's campaigned against uh, women being forced in some countries to wear full-faced veils. So now we have a reverse situation in France where we are campaigning that women who want to wear full-faced veils, the French government cannot force them not to wear it. You can imagine what this does with our members, deeply divided. We have members who actually say, no, 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 this is against women's rights, etc. So, so, you know, we are, so those are some difficult positions we have to take and we lose members sometimes. But I believe that we also gain members. There are members who join us because they think that that's correct. That's the right position for us to take. Um, So we don't make our decisions based on, you know, how many members are going to vote in one direction or the other, because at the end it has to be made on a consistent basis, the point the gentleman from Malaysia raised. Otherwise we're going to be in a lot of trouble. The good thing is that, uh, you know, if you take something like the situation in Palestine or, you know, contentious issues, everybody thinks that we support the other view. So that's good. So if everybody thinks we are biased, then we should be okay.
0: Okay, thank you, Salil. So and um, just listening to some of the questions, I'm very delighted that at least some of the questions are following very closely the curriculum of the MSc Human Rights Core <laughs>
8: Okay,
0: uh, we have uh, time. I think for yeah, I think you ha- ha- raised your hand first. The woman, just the, yeah.
4: Hi there. I'm Christy. I'm a recent graduate from Cambridge. Um, I was just wondering on your your opinion on the dilemma between trying to promote uh, local grassroots activism and the fact that in some countries that's sort of an automatic sentence to jail, torture possibly death and I mean I can see the necessity of um, you know, having it come from, from those communities but also in the kind of interim period before we have those protective rights for them <laughs> um, just really your opinion on that Thanks. And
0: if you pass it on to the person next to you and if you'd like to stand up, sir?
8: <laughs> I will stand up since I was the one who suggested it in the first place. Okay. Uh, basically, um, the, the, the whole trend of what you have been talking about is the word justice. <clears throat> Social, economic and political. And th- you span the whole region there. Now, I would like to know your opinion about what you touched on, i.e. corporate responsibility. In your country in um, about 25 years ago, Bob Powell, Dow Chemicals, correct? In Dow Chemicals, how many thousands of people died? 15,000? 20,000? And many of them are still suffering. Where's the corporate responsibility there? Another place that illustrates corporate, inverted commas, responsibility. (coughs) Again, it was uh, chemical companies in the United States, I think it was probably Dow again, who um, provided the United States military with one of the most evil um, forms of... um, Chemical poisoning called dioxin agent orange, which they dropped in the Vietnam War f- between uh, the years 1965 to 1971 or two. Yeah? So I think and made your point. We understand and, and, and that, that is it's it. So, good. all I want to hear from you is how do we, the international community, impose regulation upon those corporations.
0: Thank you very much. And if you could pass the microphone uh, to the end, to the person, two rows in front. Thank you.
4: My name is Margot Light, and I'm from the Centre for the Study of Human Rights. Uh, I have a question about amnesty itself. If amnesty moves its focus to the field, will it be able to continue to be a global organisation
0: Okay. Can I just take one last question for the person in the middle?
7: Yeah. Hi, it's all right. I can just project my voice. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I'm studying law, and I'm, I'm sorry for being a bit persistent, but this question has been bugging me for some time. Now, think about um, that strikes that kind of strikes me about human rights law and its discourse. It's it seems very adversarial in nature. I'm just wondering how. Um, It actually how it might actually be useful. I mean, in your opinion, do it's actually useful or more detrimental in fostering a human rights culture. Yeah, so that's my question. Okay, thank you.
0: That's four questions, and we'll we'll see how we do in terms of time. Thank you.
2: So the first, uh, I'm, I'm going in the sequence that it was asked. In terms of the... The point about local activism and you know, how do you square this in, particularly in countries where it's not safe to do that. So I, I wasn't in any way suggesting that there's uh, you know, a reduced role for international solidarity. I mean, not at all. In fact, if you, if you remember in the Middle East and North Africa and the so-called Arab Spring, when the Libyans were being pushed out in the tens of thousands from Libya, um, it was the Tunisians who housed them in 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 large numbers the largest number of asylum seekers were taken into tunisia and the tunisians were going through a massive crisis themselves but they took them you know on board and we saw international solidarity at its best between egypt tunisia and all of the libya you know and so there's always going to be a role for support from outside. So there's no question about that. The good thing I would say is that the countries where, you know, you have those kind of serious um, human rights uh, sort of repression, fortunately, and maybe that goes back to your overall assessment that you are asking about human rights earlier, uh, we have to remember that actually we are very fortunate that those countries are becoming fewer and fewer. Now, they're still quite, uh, you know, aggressive. Like if you take the North Koreas and the Chinas and the Irans, it's not that they don't exist, the Saudi Arabias, but it is a fact that if you compare it with 20 years ago, I mean, if you take a trend, fortunately those countries are becoming fewer and fewer. So uh, what I'm saying is, I mean, if you take again what happened in the Arab Spring, who could have predicted that change would happen in Tunisia, which is triggered by Mohamed Bouzizi, that one vegetable vendor that, you know, of course, I, you can't kind of exaggerate the importance of that. That was a flashpoint. But, yes, I mean, there was support. It was quite different from Libya where your had Western forces going in. But in the case of Tunisia, it was, it was very much a, you know, bottom-up approach. And, but if you had told me that uh, in, in Tunisia that something, could have, something of that nature could have happened, if somebody had said that to us two years ago, we would have said, no, no, you're joking. So it's happening. So, I mean, I think, you know, there's, we, we shouldn't rule out uh, these things. So, but I'm not suggesting it's an either or by any standards. Um, the the question about, I mean, we are on the same side on that conversation on Bhopal. And, and I mean, in fact, they did some very dodgy deals with uh, Union Carbide, uh, you know, being taken over by Dow, and then Dow saying that actually they have no responsibility because they were not the original owners at the time that happened. So I mean, all these usual things, but we are at it. You know, that's a long-term campaign of amnesty. So I, I would say that absolutely. What do we need to do? I mean, there's that's a long conversation. We have a whole set of uh, proposals on what we talked about earlier. You know, what is mandatory regulation for corporate uh, behavior and responsibility, and we could happy to share that with you uh, I, I mean on the field focus question uh, that you had raised I, I'm, I'm not sure you know because so what is a field I mean that's really where we are today you know because when you say field so why is London not a field I think we just have to change the way in which we think of the world you know, we are in a different point in history now because when you say if you go to the field you will lose something Because, you know, there are people who are sitting now in other places who might be thinking that this is a field. Because the Chinese uh, are maybe visualizing uh, UK, if you're posted uh, from a Chinese company to the UK, it might be considered a field posting. It's a fact. We are just in a different reality today. Than we were, you know, even 10 years ago. So we just have to kind of uh, reconceptualize the way we're thinking as to what is the center, what is the periphery, what is the field, what's the headquarters. It's a much more distributed world. We have technology which allows us to work in a very different way. Uh, We can't be naive or romantic about it. We have to be conscious of, uh, you know, we have to be careful in some places where you can't operate. But those places, fortunately, are becoming fewer and fewer. Uh, Are we, is human rights adversarial? Well, it depends it depends on you know whether people are violating human rights if you have a government or a company which is violating human rights it becomes adversarial but uh, so you know that's a question amnesty international's work i didn't talk much about that but uh, a good chunk of our work is on human rights education in schools in colleges uh, because if you don't have the basic understanding of what human rights is, in many countries we are still at that stage where people need to... I mean, I'm, I've been traveling a lot uh, to many of these places where we are starting amnesty, new amnesties in new countries. And th- they are places where you might want to start with the basics. You know? Because if people don't have a conception as to what what's the rights respecting society, then you don't jump into a kind of adversarial battle first. So, but yeah, when people are violating rights... Someone's got to speak the truth. So at that point, yeah, I suppose you, you, it depends on, you know, who, because when you say it's adversarial, uh, for the people whose rights are being violated, it might not seem adversarial. I don't know what the opposite of adversarial is in English, but whatever it is, um, I'm looking at Chetan. Um. Okay. <laughs> Proversarial. Yeah, something. So Proximate. it depends on, you know, what the vantage point is. But uh, it's, it's our job to look governments in the eye and tell them, when they're violating human rights.
0: Friendly, maybe. Um, I will take one last quick question, if anybody has a quick question. Thank you.
1: Thank you. My name is John. I have no qualifications. Um, I think, (laughs) uh, as we sit here in the first world, if you will, and we talk about international rights, rights of all people in the world, we also sit in a, country that has increasingly strict border controls, and this is not the only one, um, how do you deal with the idea that maybe there's a mixed message being sent that to people that they have rights in other places, but if they don't find their rights there, they can't come here?
2: Well, tell me about it, because you know, I spend hours and... In- at the Heathrow Airport trying to get... I mean, even though I have a resident uh, you know, thing here, so I, I'm a victim of border control in that way. Um, but I mean, Tell me about a, it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but, you know, in a very practical sense, it kind of goes back to the point you were making about field as well because it's apart from everything else, it's becoming more and more difficult for us to have international staff based here because getting a visa... Is becoming really problematic. You know. So you know, we, even if you want to actually to get visas, it's becoming more and more difficult. So there are, I mean, if you're pointing out the contradictions, there are plenty. I'd agree with you.
0: Okay, thank you. Before I give my formal thanks to Salil Shetty, I'd like to tell you about some events the centre has planned for next term. And this includes a very important panel discussion on the global theft of land, which in fact touches very much on uh, many of the areas that Salil mentioned earlier. And we also have a public lecture by an international lawyer and diplomat, Marti Koskineymi, and an, event, an important event exploring Europe's progress in tackling violence against women in the context of the very important Istanbul Convention. And we hope very much that you can make some of those events. And if you want to be uh, informed about the Centre's regular events and its other activities, you can sign up online at the Centre's website to receive our email alerts. And you can also follow us on Twitter, uh, at LSE Human Rights. And I understand we're approaching 1,000 followers, so please do be the first to reach 1,000. I can't give you a gift prize, but you might get a very nice welcome tweet in return. Can I thank Salil Shetty for coming to speak to us this evening?